We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of It's My Turn on October 24th, 1980. It was written by Eleanor Bergstein, directed by Claudia Wheel, and released by Columbia Pictures. The title throughout production was The Perfect Circle, and it changed just after they wrapped to It's My Turn. I don't, I don't understand either title. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't like the title of this movie, but that one isn't any better. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't... It's my turn. Who's, I, whose I, turn? Yeah, whose turn for what? What? Yeah, exactly. But what was... A perfect circle? The perfect circle, The perfect yeah. circle. Okay. Whatever nope. that means. I mean, yeah, I guess because yeah. mathematics? And perfect but circle? She's, she's a she's chemist, been, though. No, she's a mathematician. She's a mathematician? Yeah. I thought she was a chemist. No. She's okay. just math. Math lady. What is do- she? I thought she was trying to solve fusion or something. What is she trying she to do? She was solving the two fusion problem. <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is a mathematic problem. Okay. <laughs> Director Claudia Wheel first learned of Eleanor Bergstein's work from her 73 novel Advancing Paul Newman, which dealt with two liberated women looking for love. She asked Bergstein to write the screenplay for her previous film, Girlfriends, but Bergstein was very busy with another novel. She approached Bergstein again later with the story for this film, and now the timing worked out. It was originally intended as a teleplay for PBS and had attracted a grant of $200,000, but when the script landed on Jay Press on Allen's desk, she pushed for a theatrical release. Wheel was able to lock up a deal with 20th Century Fox, and Jill Clayburgh was attached. Hot off a pair of Best Actress nominations, Clayburgh worked with Wheel and Bergstein on rewrites. When Alan Ladd Jr. left Fox, the picture was dropped from the slate, but picked up by Ray Stark's Rastar Productions at Columbia Pictures. In 1980, Stark had served as a producer on Somewhere in Time and Seems Like Old Times. Similar sounding movies. He <laughs> disliked my turn. Yeah, well, he didn't produce this one. But uh, he worked at the production company. He executive produced it. But the producer, I think, was J. Press on Allen. Unless she was also an EP. I forget now. He disliked Wheel's cut of the film, and he took the film away from her. When his recut screened for Columbia execs, they all agreed that Wheel's cut was better, and the film was returned <laughs> to her to finish. Excellent. The third Good. cut was very close to the original pass that she presented the studio. This film was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Screenplay. What? By the absolute morons over at the Golden Raspberry Awards. What? Yeah, I thought... This is one of the better written movies this year. Yeah, this is definitely pretty well written. <laughs> I, maybe they, lo- they didn't understand <laughs> I think that's intelligent women. <laughs> I, think, I think the writing literally went over their heads in a lot of places. Because otherwise there's no explanation for that. It, that it would be in the same category as Can't Stop the Music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it felt it felt a little too modern. Yes, like, I was thinking that all the little idiosyncrasies of like dropping or like oh I forgot something at the table and then just following her back to the table as she went is like, like yeah this is this is really great it feels like I'm watching real people sometimes yeah yeah, yeah. The, well, that that was exactly what I thought the whole time I'm like this is this is really well written and I just assumed it was like well this is a female story written by a strong female writer directed yeah. by a strong female and executive produced by a strong female so like everybody was yeah, just, down the line it was it was just people a, who respected yeah it, it was across the board people who are like yes this is how women act and talk and speak this is realistic just like <laughs> other characters in movies <laughs> we open with Kate walking across campus to her classroom in class she's talking them through a correct proof of the snake lemma from homological algebra and one student cooperman keeps interrupting to tell her she has things wrong when she doesn't after class cooperman asks if she's made any progress with the two fusion group that she's working on she tells him that she's kind of stuck and he implies that he'll pick up where she left off and become world famous for his discoveries that'll be terrific i can relax i'll be famous for having taught you fuck face (laughs) <laughs> as he walks out of the room 
Kate drives home and parks in a bizarre parking structure where she has to climb over a ramp to get across it into her apartment. And she's carrying these three huge pillows with one arm and a plastic bag full of more pillows in the other <laughs> arm. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah, it's weird because her parking spot comes to almost like a cliff. Yeah. To the one ramp that goes down. I'm yeah. assuming one is an entrance ramp and one is an exit ramp. Yeah. Unless it's just two ramps on either side of a street. But, but they have like the first parking spot yeah. for this unit. Uh, here we see the credit for executive producer Jay Presson Allen. We had her as the screenwriter for our first film, Just Tell Me What You Want, this year. In her apartment, boyfriend Homer is on the phone with someone named Schneider, and he's arguing about some kind of a business deal. She jokes around with him while he yells into the phone, and he doesn't seem amused by this. In the kitchen, she talks about her problems, a job interview in New York, and a wedding that she would rather not attend. Homer tells her to just go to her father's wedding, and she says that she's staying at a hotel specifically so he doesn't know she's in town. She doesn't want to be the spinster at the wedding, but Homer tells her not to feel too bad. You're a spinster. Don't feel bad. <laughs> I, and I I have to say, I don't understand her apprehension of going to the wedding once she's there because everyone seems like to really like her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I think she just father. didn't want to be the only single person there. But like, I understand that she's not married, and maybe this is a difference between 1980 and now. Yeah. But, like, I think that somebody who's in a, a long-term, dedicated relationship, even if they're not married, would not be considered a spinster. Yeah. yeah. And especially if she'd brought him, which he would have come if she'd invited him to the yeah. wedding. But she didn't want to do that because she'd rather just avoid the whole thing. She admits to hating the woman her father is marrying. Evidently, this fiancé is making them sell their beach house, and she's putting up a fight about it. Then Kate airs some less relevant grievances. She doesn't even know how to swim. She doesn't know how to swim? (laughs) You never said she didn't know how to swim. Now that's serious. Give me a break. A woman who doesn't know how to swim is getting married. Grand Marnier omelets for dessert. She starts whisking together Grand Marnier omelets for dessert over Homer's protestations. In bed, she scribbles math on an envelope, desperately trying to beat Cooperman to the solution of her problem. I I love Charles Grodin pretending to watch in awe <laughs> and and when she scratches out and he goes ah oh. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. like, <laughs> like 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 he, he almost had it so yeah but i also like when the first thing he says is carrier too like he knows <laughs> what he's talking about <laughs> she tells homer that they're probably only interviewing her for the job because they think they need a woman applicant he mimics her worries and she tries to explain how serious solving this equation would be y- you do understand it would be i would be in a in a class with euclid and newton Really? She fantasizes that somehow she can take the job and continue her own work. The next day, on campus, a fellow instructor asks if Homer's coming with her to New York, and she says that she might not go to the wedding, and she doesn't want Homer just hanging out after her interview. Back in her apartment, Homer's on the phone with his ex discussing their daughter and her potential appendicitis. Kate asks if her stomach is hard or stool is loose, and when the answers are both no, she says it's not appendicitis. Homer then moves on to ask how his ex's audition went, while Kate struggles to pick out clothes for the weekend. Eventually, he hangs up when he hears her having a tantrum in the other room. She is panicking, and he's trying fruitlessly to calm her down. She argues with Homer about what he's allowed to eat while she's gone, and in the process drops a frozen chicken on her toe. Homer jokes, It's your out! It's your out! Dear Dad, can't make wedding. Chicken broke toe. And I don't care. Chicken broke toe, and I don't care. She finally breaks down laughing, and hours later, she finds him deep in thought doing some work. She tells him that she's all packed. She listens in as he records notes for a presentation he'll be making, and she gives him some polite suggestions to improve his wording. Well, and they're good suggestions. They are, and he's they're taking great. them. Yeah. 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 They work well it together. Seems, I was going to say, it seems like they have a, a good thing going here yeah, yeah. He'll, which was he'll accept really frustrating for me for the rest of he's the a movie Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> but he says what we do is take two of the buildings in the project and designate them as elderly buildings this way wait a minute i don't think you should say elderly buildings why not i don't think it's clear oh it's perfectly clear no. it sounds as if the buildings are elderly no, no, yes no, no, no. elderly yes. people in the buildings. no it sounds like it has uh rusty pipes cracking walls elderly buildings He seems fairly receptive to her notes, and she ends by complimenting him on a few random phrases to avoid hurting his feelings overall. I like that. I like that phrase. It's good. That's a good phrase. Sit in in the lobby? Press buttons? Both. Both! As she leaves, 
Homer closes the elevator gate for her and jokes, I'll have you out of there in 24 hours. <laughs> this is a very non-traditional New York skyline. Yeah. When when I, I thought she said she was going to New York and I'm looking for any kind of sign yeah. that we are now in New York, you know, like, because it's pretty standard that you would show, you know, the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building or the Twin Towers since it's 1980. Uh, yeah, they, they they were built finished or, right. Uh, you, weird map painting over Central Park West. Yeah, like something, but but we see no. The only the only way I was absolutely sure it was New York was I saw the Plaza Hotel. Yes, and I was like, okay, so well, and also Central Park is right across the street. Right, right, right. But I mean, but I was wondering if maybe they didn't shoot it in New York, and they were just trying to just say, hey, we're in New York, and we're just going to show a couple of random buildings. Well, uh, they did shoot largely in Burbank for this movie. We see her taxi pull up from inside of a Central Park adjacent restaurant, and we're looking through a bunch of plants as the taxi rolls by like we're in the middle of the jungle. In her hotel room, she calls her father to announce her arrival in New York as a surprise for him. She tells him about the interview and that she'll see them afterwards tonight for dinner. Kate has her interview with three men at the same time. They ask if her work has come to a standstill since she's considering a mostly administrative position. I think that's a fair question. Yeah. Yeah. She tells them that she assumes she would still be afforded hours to continue work on her own, but they're not able to guarantee that for her. That night, she arrives for her family dinner at Tavern on the Green. Stepping inside, she tries to remove her sunglasses and takes a big chunk of her hair with them. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> yeah. She does it actually at the end of the interview, too, so multiple times she's doing this to her hair. Well, it's the same with, with dropping her, like, her coat. Her coat. Yeah. Like, yeah. she's always dropping something. Well, she's got complicated clothing, as we come That's to true. find out. Dumb, Dumb clothing. <laughs> Dumb clothing. Say. There you go. <laughs> Kate sneaks up on her dad to give him a hug and then moves around the table hugging everybody, including an aunt who whispers, Thank God your dear mother didn't live to see this day but that's not typically how remarriage works for widowers you don't live to see your widower marry other people (laughs) this day wouldn't be happening dad introduces her to the children he's adopting i guess is that the word when you're acquiring that sounds (laughs) wrong inheriting (laughs) inheriting is his wife dead now dowry of children (laughs) yes dowry of children there you go uh he has a stepdaughter and her psychiatrist husband and then he has a stepson named Ben, like his father. She tells him that she thinks she flubbed the interview, and he doesn't believe it. Her dad brags about her math skills, and he mentions that she only got one problem wrong on some planar geometry test. And then the psych stepbrother-in-law asks which problem she got wrong, because you know he just wanted to like shout out the correct answer yeah. and prove that he's smarter than her. But she says, The problem was to compute the area of a, a patio around a pool and i applied the right method but i uh, i put the patio inside the pool <laughs> that wouldn't happen to me now i live with a builder i like that she says builder and not yeah. like architect or yeah. construction worker just builder like he's just bob out there with a bunch of tools <laughs> <laughs> um what now diane weiss uh plays a character named Gail. she's a cousin cousin okay. i figured it out eventually yeah <laughs> because when aunt rita says something like how's the married man about homer mm-hmm. her boyfriend then her daughter says mom okay he wasn't he's been divorced since before they met or something like that mm-hmm. so it is her cousin but it it did take like a certain amount a while, of like yes. family tree dissection and backing it up to try to yeah. figure out how everyone. They was don't related. spell it out for you, and I feel like it would have felt awkward if they were spelling it out any more than for they sure. did. Like go cousin Gail. Yeah. <laughs> oh, stepbrother in law, psychiatrist guy. <laughs> Does anyone here ever has ever, anyone ever referred to their cousin as cousin so and so? No. 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 All right. No. Do, do you? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I refer to non-cousins as cousin so-and-so every once in a while. Well, Literally so-and-so. And your Uncle Richard, and there is no blood relation there. <laughs> That's true. When the gravy boat comes around the table, uh, Kate takes it and just loads up her plate with gravy until it's overflowing. And then we just see her eating spoonfuls of gravy as her new stepbro Ben, smirks amused across the table. Her father stands and says he thinks it's time for a dance with his girl. Kate stands with him, misunderstanding that he wanted to take his fiance to the dance floor. When Ben sees this happening, he moves around the table to take Kate to the dance floor as well. Classy move. <laughs> it was. Yeah. I loved that. It and was then, super sweet. Yeah. And while they're dancing, she says, Thanks for the rescue. Freudian. 
which reminds her that she thinks that he's a psychiatrist and so she says she doesn't like psychiatrists and he's like yeah i'm not a psychiatrist that's my brother my brother-in-law over there is the psychiatrist um but from her father's introduction she misunderstood that ben was a psychologist uh because he said ben like his father but he just meant that they have the same name that's it she asked i didn't get that well it's a generally weird way to introduce somebody i think regardless of what your intent was to say like what aspect of him was like his father his name or his job well or whatever here's the thing though if you're going around the table and you say this is a brother-in-law he's a psychologist you already know that both of their dad is a psychologist because you know yeah. these people and then he gets to ben he's like and ben like his father and ben has a psychiatrist beard like just a straight up psychiatrist <laughs> beard and so if you already think this is a family of psychiatrists and you point to one and say he's like his father then you assume that he is also a psychiatrist Don't just look at him and, and understand he has a washed up ball player beard <laughs> no apparently not that's that's not uh the first thing she came up with she asks where his wife is and he says holland but we never get a further explanation for that other than you know she comes back at some point but i don't know why she's in holland Ben's dancing gets sillier and sillier until they're literally crashing into people and Kate has to step outside to avoid throwing up. Fred, I think you better find Ginger. I'm about to barf all over my tap shoes. So this joke was not as deep as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, you stretched it an extra layer. Well, I thought she was feeling sick and, and she was making a joke about Fred and Ginger, which makes you feel better when you're sick to your stomach and not oh. just dancers, but oh. <laughs> I think I'm reading into it. Yeah, you put, a, you put an extra an extra layer. They push through, I think, the same door that Lewis Tully can't get in through in Ghostbusters four years later. Nice doggy, cute little pooch. Maybe I got a milk bone. <laughs> On the patio, Ben advises her to force herself to throw up, but she can't commit to it. <laughs> and he says she's a chicken, basically. No guts. <laughs> Later in the bathroom, her new stepmother, Emma, confesses that she made her father sell the beach house because he's not supposed to be lugging that old boat around, especially after a recent cardiogram. She lied to him that she wants to live near her children and grandchildren, when in reality she just wants him to be safe and knew that he wouldn't sell this place to protect himself. I struggled so hard with this conversation um, because... I think because Kate set this woman up as being unlikable at the beginning, yeah. which I think is unfounded as we mm -hmm. as we proceed through the movie, we figure that out. But I didn't really understand that at this point, and so I was trying to figure out how sh this was how she was being sneaky and wrong and in doing this stuff. Yeah, Emma admits that she can't stand her son-in-law either. It's a sacrifice for her to give up the beach house. I think it's great, like. Not only is Kate sort of defying our stereotypical women of the time, but even this woman saying, like, I don't want to live near my grandkids. Like, I, yeah. you know, I think I don't want to be a free babysitter. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely it's it's nice the way we're writing these characters. Yeah. And they kind of I wouldn't say, like, maybe find a perfect common ground, but I think they both understand each other a little bit better. And she appreciates like, that this woman genuinely cares about her father. Yeah. 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 When they return to the table, Ben is standing up talking to a couple other men about his days playing baseball. Apparently, they just, they're just they just men from other tables in the restaurant that recognized him and came to talk to him. He's famous. Yeah. She learns that he's something of a celebrity in the sports world. And her, her I think another cousin, I think Diane Weist's brother, says... Ben Lewin, Kate. The guy who robbed Reggie Jackson of his home in Detroit. Unless that's supposed to be Diane Weist's husband. They're sitting on opposite sides of their aunt, though, so I think they're siblings. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think it matters. No, probably not. Evidently, he was forced into retirement by some kind of a shoulder injury. Ben pauses the conversation with these men to verify that Kate is feeling better, and she says she is. Ben invites his mother to the dance floor for more of his wacky dances, and Kate and her father follow. Kate mentions her father's hair could use a trim, and he says... You know how I feel about barbers and that he hasn't had a decent haircut in two years, which is presumably how long it's been since his wife passed away. When they leave the restaurant, Ben offers to walk Kate home. On the way, Kate fills in her backstory for Ben. Her boyfriend is a divorced man named Homer, which he finds amusing. She's here for a job interview in addition to the wedding, and Homer can't move to New York with her if she gets it. Ben says since leaving baseball, he mainly does public speaking motivational speaking, and so forth. Talk about sportsmanship, discipline, Boy Scouts. 
When they get to the hotel bar for a nightcap, it's already closed for the evening. Ben suggests they bring something up to her room, and instead she diverts him to the hotel's arcade. There's no Pac-Man in here yet. That came out the day before The Shining, but this movie <laughs> probably shot earlier than that. Well, they have other um, they have other video games in there. Yeah. I mean, it mm. just qualifies as a game room because they also have like physical games like That's ping pong true. and darts and stuff. Although sometimes you have those in an arcade too. Maybe, I don't know. She challenges him to ping pong, a baseball video game, and eventually foosball, where she finally scores her first point of the night. She keeps challenging him to darts, but he says it's a dull game. At the foosball table, she gets her weird stringy scarf thing stuck on one of the handles, and he asks, Why are your clothes so dumb? But also, <laughs> she's playing foosball wrong. She is doing the like the full handle spin yeah. like rotation where you just you know fling it around in circles, and that is not legal. Correct. There's a term for it. I can't think of what it is. Illegal. Know. Illegal. <laughs> Illegal. <laughs> but when he says this, she just says, You're dumb. They open her hotel room later, and he just starts kissing her, but she's not ready for that. She gets them a couple beers from the room's mini fridge. Kate asks why he thinks her clothes are dumb, and he says, Why couldn't you have, like, a, a one color? He suggests green, or black and white, just simple color schemes, and she kind of drops it there. She says that her folks always got along really well, and Ben says that his didn't. Kate starts asking about Ben's various sports injuries and scars, and he's undressing to show them off. His explanations for the scars get more and more outlandish as he goes, but she doesn't pick up until he claims that Babe Ruth stepped on him to cause one. <laughs> they lay down in the bed together when Kate asks how many people in this bed. She means it in the Freudian sense. Freud said... That there were at least four people in every relationship. How many people do you think there are here? They count eight between themselves, their parents, and their lovers. They start kissing again when there's a knock at the door. It's a delivery person with a bouquet of roses from Homer, presumably. Yeah, we never really find out exactly. Yeah, there's no name on it, but it just says, Missing you tonight. And uh, Ben jokes, well, it's probably not your dad. <laughs> Kate pricks a finger on one of the roses, seemingly on purpose, when Ben moves to the bathroom to get her paper towels, she picks up his shirt to bleed on, and he starts yelling at her for it. Totally valid. Yep. This kicks off a short fight between the two, but they hug it out and part ways amicably. The next day, Kate has her father over to her hotel room to try and cut his hair, but before she could even get started, her father confesses that they planned to gift her the beach house as a wedding gift, and she doesn't know what to say here. Like, so, like a wedding gift... For her. Marrying Homer? Uh, I don't know if it's for that. Or, or for their wedding. For their, their wedding. wedding, they were going to give it to her. Okay, I wasn't clear on that because I, I, I kind of felt that it was like, I'm like, is, are there strings attached to this? Like, are you making me get married to this guy who doesn't no. want to get married? No, I but, think the whole point was that you thought this woman was being a bitch and selling the beach house for money so she could have more money to spend with your father. And it turns out they're going to give you the beach house. They don't. They literally don't care about it. She just doesn't want him to use it because it's bad for his health. And maybe that whole thing was like an excuse just to like throw her off the the idea that they had agreed to sell yeah, it to her. And it was her possible. dad's idea to get rid of the place and give yeah. it to her. She starts clipping his hair, but clearly has no idea what she's doing, and eventually he calls her up. You ever cut anyone's hair before? <laughs> I used to watch very carefully when Mommy did. The next day, Kate and her cousin come out of Bloomingdale's together. She points out that everything she bought was either green, black, or white, the three colors that Ben recommended she try. Which is not, like, uh, something worth observing. Like, yeah. I, I did. Yeah. You bought three different colors of clothing. I just, like, I'm, I don't think I would notice if somebody, like, even if you bought five things and, If like, it was all green, I would have been like, right. why'd you get all green today? Right. But, but three different colors is not, not a coincidence not anymore. Not worth noticing. <laughs> That's strange. You got a green thing and a black thing and a white thing. Those are three colors. <laughs> Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. I mean green. Across the street from Bloomingdale's, we can see theater marquees advertising Simon and Nijinsky, suggesting this was shot in Marchish or Aprilish of 1980. <laughs> I I'm on the lookout now, and making, <laughs> so I made notes here. I said I put the old Simon and Nijinsky poster, yeah. like Mark, because I was like, Pat's going to ask us which movies were were in this. <laughs> I need to be ready. All right, I'm going to quiz you guys in the future. I won't just tell you. She tells her cousin that she and her husband seemed very happy together, 
and her cousin advises her to make it work with Homer any way she can. I love Diane Weist. She is the best. She she is such a natural just person and and when she smiles I feel it's like it's always a genuine smile. I could have seen her in the lead of this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. Kate is woken from a midday nap in her hotel room by a phone call. She is officially being offered the New York job and now has to make a decision. While she's on the phone, there's a knock at the door, another bouquet of flowers with a note reading, sorry, this time probably from Ben. The delivery kid runs away before she can tip him, though, probably because she's not wearing any pants. See, I would think he'd hang out longer. Mm -hmm. No, he's a (laughs) professional. Kate calls Emma to try and get a phone number to reach Ben at. It turns out Ben is at their apartment right now delivering a wedding gift. Kate says, oh, uh, I got one too. I'll head right over with it. (laughs) Now off to buy a wedding gift. (laughs) Moving men are carrying Kate's father's furniture into Emma's apartment. Daddy gives Kate a tour of the place. Along the way, she notices a plaque commemorating Ben's first place finish in a high school dart championship and realizes that he was trying to lure her into a game of darts that whole night to embarrass her. (laughs) This whole scene, Ben has been stuck on the phone with a PR company that he's trying to find work through. Suddenly, the executive vice president of the company enters the room. It's an old friend of Ben's. Emma seems to know him as well. His name is Flicker, and I'm guessing he's also a former professional baseball player. Together, Flicker and Ben carry a huge pump into the bathroom, which converts a normal bathtub into a bubbling hot tub. Emma is very appreciative to Flicker for bringing this gift over himself, but as soon as he's out of the room, she's like, get the thing out of here. <laughs> but, like, in front of Ben, like, to Ben. Yeah, yeah. but it, it seemed like it was a, it was, she was trying to be very nice to Ben's friend, but it's her own son. She's allowed to be critical in front <laughs> guess, of her son. Yeah. Flicker tells Ben that he told George to list Ben for today's game. It's an old-timers game, which is a real thing that they do. Ben is embarrassed, and Flicker tells him it could be a great opportunity. Some tire company could be looking for a flashy new VP, and they're going to see you on television and hire you right away. They talk about a friend, Jerry Lands, who apparently just signed a contract to take his frozen yogurt franchise nationwide. Back in the kitchen of the apartment, for the second time this month, we watch a Jewish widow unwrapping a Cuisinart wedding gift. Mm-hmm. Cuisinart. 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 We looked it up. No. Yes. I Googled it. I played a YouTube video for I you. I wasn't listening. It's pronounced Cuisinart. <laughs> Kate is showing them how it works when she slices her finger open again like a dumb. Like everyone else who ever owned a Cuisinart. <laughs> is that a thing? Oh, man. Those blades are crazy sharp. It just seems like she does this Quality. constantly, though. She did this with the roses. She was like, hmm, what are these thorns? What are these thorns? How do they work? Ow! <laughs> and then the she bees are defending themselves it. somehow. <laughs> yeah. Ben makes fun of her for accidentally cutting herself. Serves you right. Trying to mutilate my mother like that. What about you trying to disintegrate my dear old dad? <laughs> he compliments her green blouse. These are very, very pretty blouses. That, it's uh, green. But also, no more or less complicated than yeah. all the rest of the clothes It's that not she like owns. it's just a straight green. There's still like a, no, it's, a, a embroidered fabric. Well, yeah. And it's not like it's like a straight button-up, you know, like collared shirt. Like it's like buttons off to the sides. It's got mm-hmm. a little tie on the bottom. I'm like, this is this is equally dumb. But it's not like four layers of dumb where she's got like this is a... True. I don't even know what you would call it, like a beaded shawl. It's like all. It looked like she was wearing a loose abacus as a shawl. Yeah, if if it was jet black, I could have seen Morticia Adams wearing something like that. Abacus. (laughs) It seemed like it had a bunch of beads on it that were falling off when she broke it on that foosball table. Bees. (laughs) Yeah, bees. Bees Bees. impaled on the strings of fabric. I was making Arrested Development. (laughs) Bees. Beads. I'm just going to read you what this says. (laughs) Ready? These are always fun. Ben takes a call from his daughter and teeth over here sit. (laughs) I figured it out. (laughs) Ben takes a call from his daughter and Kate overhears it, previously unaware that he had children. It's like that game where you read off the the the, card, the nonsense words and try to figure out what it actually says. (laughs) I think I'd be better at this game than I was when we started this podcast. 
Goodwill shows up and Ben and Kate move to box up a bunch of books that should have been in boxes before Goodwill got here. Before Kate got here, even, because they thought she was Goodwill when she got here. But they're all jerks about this. Like, yeah. you, you see the Goodwill guy waiting and you take the time to, like, slowly have a conversation while you're putting books in boxes. But the mom, too, is just like, last call for books. And you're like... No, 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 no. The guy's here. If it's not in a box and ready to walk out the door, yeah, you, that was already the last call. Not You're only done. that, but he already complains to them that they're giving him more than they said they had. Right. Because he's like, you said three items. This is a lot more than three items. And then she's like, oh, by the way, there's more books. Go do that. But while they're packing up all these books, the pickup guy's just standing there in the doorway waiting for them to be finished. Ben talks to Kate about how his father didn't approve of his career until Kate finds two dozen Ben Lewin rookie cards being used as bookmarks in this whole bookshelf. Ben seems very surprised to see them. When he realizes how unfamiliar Kate is with baseball, he changes his mind about the old-timers game and invites her along to watch. This is a real annual event, and this particular occurrence took place on June 21st of 1980, so a full month after Pac-Man's release. <laughs> uh, is that is that how we're yes we're, how we is measure this, everything <laughs> like everything uh, is based uh, on uh, on odomini but yeah. it's, well, ap and bp <laughs> it's entirely possible he could have been in that arcade i like that i'm referring to pac-man as a he in that note uh <laughs> players we didn't hear introduced who played that day included joe dimaggio and yogi berra but maybe oh. they didn't get the rights to uh the their likenesses in the film i don't know baseball and i'm sure these are all huge players but the first one that i recognized was whitey ford mostly because of his appearance on the simpsons wherein he was beaten <laughs> unconscious on the field with marge's pretzels by an angry crowd after mr burns rigged a contest to win a 1997 pontiac astro wagon here come the pretzels no no don't do that you're supposed to be tasting them Hall of Famer Whitey Ford now on the field, pleading with the crowd for for some kind of sanity. Uh-oh, in a barrage of pretzels now knocking Whitey unconscious. Wow, this is uh, this is a black day for baseball. You can call them Whitey Whackers. <laughs> According to his introduction, Ben is the youngest old-timer here today, having played in the World Series a mere five years ago. Kate applauds Ben wildly from the stands. Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle take the field as well, rounding out the three players I'd heard of. Roger Maris hits a foul ball that bounces into Kate's section and she almost gets her hands on it. When Mickey Mantle steps up to the plate, he hits a pop fly for the fences and Ben is there to catch it. Kate is worried that he's injured himself crashing into the wall to make the catch though. Though this doesn't really pay off in any form. There's nothing happened to him. After the game, Ben pushes through autograph hounds to meet up with Kate. She tells him she had a great time and that she almost caught a ball, and he tells her that he owes her one. Well, she also congratulates him on that catch, and he yeah. brushes it off. Because yeah, he says there's no great catches in old-timers. Yeah, so I think it just short, sort of punctuates how upset he is about his career being over. Yeah, but I think it's, it's also like an implication of like, it doesn't count like in a real game when you make a great catch, because these people are so far out of practice. Yeah. He's smiling a lot here, but he does seem embarrassed to have participated in the game at all. They make plans for Chinese food, but then change them immediately to just head back to Kate's hotel room. This time, they make it as far as the sex. <laughs> they make it as far as the sex. Yeah. Like, they didn't get that far, but they didn't go any further. Well, <laughs> that's what I was laughing at. Like, what, what else was there that they didn't get oh, to this so time? Oh, so many plans. <laughs> Afterwards, Ben points out that her watch is slow, and she corrects him that it's on Chicago time. She needs to know when Cooperman is sleeping so she can keep up with his progress on the math problem and not let him beat her to the solution. She tells Ben that she got the job off her and he tries to talk her out of it. The wedding ceremony is quick and painless, and while people are chatting afterward, we see Jacob, Kate's father, grimacing and then sneaking a pill into his mouth. Emma notices, and together they excuse their guests. Like, she walks over, they had a plan already, like, if you're feeling uncomfortable... You give me the signal, and I'll come over, and we'll say I'm tired. Yeah. And we'll we'll go off to the other room. I was sure this movie was going to end with a funeral. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't doubt that there was another draft somewhere that that did happen. Yeah, in. that could for sure have happened. But uh, before they they step out of the room, uh, Jacob, the father, says, "Ladies and gentlemen, the bride is feeling a little tired. 
We're going to be leaving you now so that she can uh, sit quietly for a few minutes and decide if she's made a mistake. (laughs) Kate and Ben head to the airport together. As they move through security, Kate is suddenly proposing that she take the job and they move in together, despite him being married with children. But it seems like kind of crazy fast for her, too. Like three days, two or three days? Yeah. 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 I mean, she's been so rational up until this point. I mean, even though, you know, she slipped up and and cheated on her relationship, she's been fairly rational about everything. And then this seemed like a departure from that character. And immediately he passes on the offer. She's getting increasingly desperate with her pleas. Finally, he tells her that before this trip, he found out that his wife was having an affair with his best friend. He says he didn't care, but he has a daughter and he can't leave her alone. And he's been married for seven years and intends to stay that way. Ben does his best to point out to her that she's planning her entire life around a guy she just slept with yesterday and that they barely know each other. Eventually, they come to terms with each other and then they end the conversation with, I'm glad I have a brother like you, and I love you, sis. (laughs) Back at home, Kate is greeted by Homer and his children from a previous marriage. She sits Homer down in the apartment, and they have a serious conversation. She tells him that he jokes all the time, and he doesn't take what she has to say very seriously. And he doesn't disagree, and he's joking through this entire lecture, too. He tells her that he doesn't think he's capable of caring about every problem that she brings to his attention. They had some kind of an agreement when they met about how things would work and that they wouldn't have to do certain things and they would give each other space and and it seems like by trying to change their lives in a significant way kate is breaking the contract or something yeah i mean i don't i don't disagree that they might have had that sort of arrangement but i also feel like she's looking for excuses to break this off yeah no and or she just sees genuinely that they're not a they're not a good fit for each other anymore that yeah, this isn't what maybe. she wants anymore it just it just felt more or she it, cheated on him and now she's yeah she could have said that <laughs> that would have made it go much faster maybe i don't know he didn't seem to want a lot of commitment but yeah. at the same time i don't understand why if the other guy doesn't want her she doesn't say look i think we have some things to work through you know he, well because that would imply that he needs to change yeah. And she knows he's he has no interest in that. Yeah. He's too old for that. He tells her that caring about all of her problems would be a full-time job and an exhausting one. Kate thinks that she and Homer could spend more time involving themselves in each other's problems, but Homer says he's not at all interested in that. He says, I don't think I can do what you're describing. I, I, I really don't. I mean, I did that and it really drove me crazy. I know. Homer sees the breakup coming and he's powerless to stop it. We see Kate on campus with Cooperman as they discuss her math problem. She barely says anything to him about the problem, basically just that she has some new ideas about the two fusion, but he extrapolates these words into a whole solution that he thinks is a breakthrough. Next, we see Kate entering the Department of Mathematics faculty offices, where she's stopped by a delivery person from Jerry Lanz's frozen yogurt company. He's delivering a package from Ben, and when she unwraps it, it's an ice cream cone with a baseball in it. Although... I think it's just ice cream that looks like a baseball. Yeah, I think it's just decorated well, to look like a yeah, baseball. It's, yeah, that's that's what I meant. But, <laughs> but the weird it's, thing... It's not at the center of a Tootsie Pop. It's yeah. a baseball. <laughs> but uh, it has, like, the stitching painted around the yeah. outside of it. But I feel like this might have gone before the Cooperman scene. Because in the Cooperman scene, she's literally eating something out of an ice cream cone that's yeah. melting very rapidly. And I feel like that was supposed to be after she unwraps this. And then they flipped them. So then she's getting the thing in the cone after she yeah, was eating I, it already. I, and and it, and I thought that maybe, she ate two ice cream cones that day. Yeah, I was like, did did, did we establish she has some kind of affinity for ice cream, <laughs> and that she's always eating? I don't remember them ever eating ice cream. And and how would he know to get her ice cream when she's already eating ice cream? It was like, and I thought I thought there was going to be like this thing where he like he spotted her start like at an ice cream store and then decided to it would be funny. Like, yeah, like he was gonna be there to come see her. Like, I, I, I was like, I was really baffled. Yeah, well, I, I, I think really what happened was originally she was supposed to get this thing, and then she was supposed to be walking around the campus eating it, and then people were like, "Oh, I thought that was a baseball in the ice cream cone during a test screening," and they were like, "No, no, no, it was frozen yogurt in the shape of a baseball." 
because they're like, well, is she just eating the baseball that he gave her? <laughs> and they're like, fine, then we'll have her unwrap the baseball later so that it could be either way and it doesn't matter. Wait, does she have the other ice cream when she gets the new one? No. No. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's why I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be the same one. And that they thought this made a better finish than her talking to Cooperman about the math problem. And then we start into Diana Ross's theme for the film, also called It's My Turn. It's my turn to see what I can see. I hope you'll understand this time's just for me. Because and that's the end of our movie. Director Claudia Wheel, before this, she did a feature called Girlfriends. And after this, it's basically all TV stuff, including most recently an episode of HBO's Girls with Lena Dunham. It's uh, a good show. Writer Eleanor Bergstein, this was her first screenplay, but she went on to write Dirty Dancing, which was based largely on her own life experience, and she later wrote and directed Let It Be Me with Jennifer Beals and Campbell Scott. There's some great interviews with her on Netflix's The Movies That Made Us episode about Dirty Dancing. She talks about how the producers forced her to cut an erotic dance scene out of this film, which in part inspired that one, because she wanted hmm. to make a movie that was just the stuff that they made her take out of this movie <laughs> our producer was jay press on allen she wrote marnie cabaret funny lady earlier this year she adapted our first film just tell me what you want from her own first novel next year she will reteam with sydney lumet for prince of the city and again in 82 for death trap rounding out a trilogy of collaborations though she is an uncredited screenwriter on sydney lumet's the verdict jill clayberg was kate gunzinger such a cool last name she was just recently mentioned by name in Private Benjamin when Goldie Hawn's character admitted to not understanding Clayberg's character in Paul Mazursky's An Unmarried Woman. Clayberg was nominated for Best Actress for that role and her following role in 1979's Starting Over. We'll see her next as Ruth Loomis in First Monday in October next year and then as Barbara Gordon, not that Barbara Gordon, <laughs> in I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can, written by her husband, playwright David Rabe, and starring her cousin, and student from this film, Diane Wiest and Daniel Stern. It also represents the first screen pairing of Wet Bandit's Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci. Speaking of Barbara Gordon, a.k.a. Batgirl, though, where is that movie? <laughs> I know we have a Batwoman show, but I find Batman's cousin a significantly less compelling superhero origin than Commissioner Gordon's daughter, which would be awesome. Yes. Are we just going to reboot Batman every 10 years and we're never going to do anything with any of the other characters? She's pretty funny on the, the, the Batgirl character is pretty funny on the, on the animated series. Yeah. Yeah. Clayberg also portrayed Allie McBeal's mother on that show. Her final feature film appearance was as Kristen Wiig's mother in Bridesmaids, though sadly she passed away at 66 from leukemia before the film was released. Her daughter, Lily Rabe, has been a featured player of FX's American Horror Story for 10 years now. Michael Douglas played Ben Lewin. This was Michael's first 80s film, though we've had his father Kirk three times thus far in Saturn 3, Home Movies, and The Final Countdown. Michael plays Detective Nick Curran in Basic Instinct, Dan Gallagher in Fatal Attraction. Those two movies get mixed up a lot. <laughs> Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. We won't see him again until The Star Chamber in 83, but he follows that up with Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile in the following two years. And he's already great in this yeah. film. Um I, I get why he went on to to do a lot of other great films. Uh, this movie felt really modern, and maybe it was because I'm used to him in later films. Mm -hmm. But there was there was so much about it, like even just the poster to me, <laughs> right. felt like it was straight out of the '90s. Yeah. Uh, well, and uh, you know, Michael Douglas. I mean, he he was producing films even at this point, right? Because he had uh, produced One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, and seventy five, and, and I think he even produced uh, The China Syndrome. Oh yeah which he starred in just prior to this. He's also in American President, Ghost in the Darkness, The Game, Wonder Boys, Traffic. He currently portrays the original Ant-Man Hank Pym for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And in 2003, he was in a film with his father and son called It Runs in the Family. Charles Grodin played Homer. In 1994, he was in a film called It Runs in the Family. Different movie, though. We had him previously in our Patreon review of Catch-22, where he played Captain Arfi Aardvark, <laughs> rapist and murderer. Yeah. The the, the weird... Because he's... never He's never like this. Like, I mean, I've seen him play angry characters. Like Yeah, can you, at the end of Beethoven, yeah. he just rapes and murders somebody? <laughs> but this dog ruin Thanksgiving? But, but, I mean, I've never seen him quite so menacing. Yeah. 
Ah, no, they're not going to put me in jail. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you say he raped somebody at the end of Beethoven? And murdered them no, at the end of oh. Catch-22. Okay. <laughs> but I was saying he gets angry since then, but never that angry. Okay. I was confused about the logic. <laughs> Remember when he throws the dog out of a second story window because he can't stand it anymore? Right. <laughs> we'll see him again in Seems Like Old Times later this year. Also, Shrinking Woman and Muppet Caper next year. He's also the original dad in the Beethoven franchise. Uh, he's one of the ghosts in Heart and Souls. He's Martin Daniels in Clifford. He's Jim Harrison in Ishtar, Dr. Bigelow on Louie. But my favorite roles from him, neck and neck, are Jonathan Mardukas in Midnight Run and yeah. Commandeer Driver in So I Married an Ex-Murderer. <laughs> but he just doesn't want to give up his car. No. <laughs> Beverly Garland played Emma. She has lots of credits dating back to the 40s. Standouts include something called The Alligator People. I want to see that. <laughs> She's in a few Climax episodes, A Twilight Zone. She joined My Three Sons for the last three seasons to play the stepmother to the titular sons. She was Ellen Lane, mother of Lois Lane on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. And she was also Ginger Jackson on Seventh Heaven. We'll have another cast member from that show in our next film. Stephen Hill played Jacob. Uh, that's the father. Yeah. He was Daniel Briggs on Mission Impossible. He also weirdly appeared in 229 episodes of Law & Order as District Attorney Adam Schiff, <laughs> spelled the same as the California representative. <laughs> uh, Charles Kimbrough played Jerome. That's the weird psychiatrist brother-in-law. Uh, he played a salesman in Starting Over with Jill Clayburgh the year before, which is probably how he connected to this film. He's the voice of Victor in Hunchback of Notre Dame. He's also Jim Dial in 250 episodes of Murphy Brown, alongside Joe Regal Budo, who we just had in Schizoid. Daniel Stern was Cooperman. He also appeared with Clayburgh in her previous film, Starting Over, and he'll be back for her next film, I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can. This was his fourth appearance for the year after Small Circle of Friends, Stardust Memories, and One Trick Pony. You'll know Daniel Stern when you see him. You've, you've heard of this guy. <laughs> He's also extremely tall. Yes. And when you put him next to Joe Pesci, he's even taller. Diane Weist plays Gail, Cousin Gail. This is Diane Weist's first film. We get to cover all of them. Yay. Though her name is spelled wrong in the credits because Diane has two ends and it should only have one. Or no. It should have two. Because Diane, yeah, her name is spelled wrong in the credits because Diane has has one end in the credits and it should have two. I goddamn love Diane Weist is my next note. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like I said, she comes back for I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can in 82. She makes regular appearances in Woody Allen movies. She plays Peg in Edward Scissorhands. She was D.A. Dora Lewin in 48 Law and Orders. Uh, she's in Synecdoche, Parenthood, The Lost Boys, The Horse Whisperer. But whenever I think of her, I think of a joke from David Wayne's The Ten. Okay. Where uh, <laughs> Paul Rudd bumps yes. into his ex-wife and they're playing catch up on the sidewalk. Would you maybe want to grab a cup of coffee oh i'd love to but after liz and i broke up i got married and i don't want to make the same mistake twice you know adultery oh uh who are you married to diane weiss that's great <laughs> wow i loved her in bullets over broadway oh yeah she's really proud of that one and the oscar didn't hurt either mm -hmm. uh, plus the residual checks come in handy it's like thanks woody you know right. <laughs> did you have something else Weasty? well I, I just wanted to say that her part in that Sindoki, Schenectady, Schenectady, whatever movie that was, which was I couldn't stand, but I did love her because she plays Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Yeah, and and he looks You're at weirdly her weirdly close to what I envisioned yeah. for this character. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Noah Hathaway plays Homer's son in this final scene when he comes out with his kids when she's getting home from her trip. Mm -hmm. He plays Boxy on Battlestar Galactica. He's harry potter jr <laughs> in troll and he's fucking atreyu in never ending story that's right <laughs> isn't that crazy i'm sorry did you say harry yes. potter jr yeah he in troll for... the prequel to troll 2 uh, <laughs> unless they're not related at all i'm so confused <laughs> he literally plays a character named harry potter jr and he played atreyu in never ending story okay that's phenomenal Raymond Singer was the rabbi. He plays a social worker in Child's Play 2. He's a young doctor in Star Trek IV Undiscovered Country. And he wrote Mulan. <laughs> he also wrote direct-to-video sequels, Joseph, King of Dreams, 
a sequel to one of your favorites. That's right. And Lion King 3, Hakuna Matata, a sequel to one of my favorites, Lion King 1 and a half. I don't care about that movie. I never even saw it. One of the things in the credits was, and I ran through them with my father. I was just like, Dad, do you recognize any of these following names? <laughs> and I just read off all the baseball players who didn't get introductions but mm-hmm. were in the credits. Yeah. And, I was, and he's like, no, no, yes, no. Like, so, <laughs> um, so he recognized quite a few of them. Uh, but I, I mean, we, won't, we won't tire you by reading them all. But there's a lot of baseball players in this yes. movie. <laughs> Because they do one like long tracking shot across the faces of the whole team. Yeah. Up. Um, I did want to mention um, the, and I can't remember if we mentioned him for Can't Stop the Music, but it's the same DP, uh, Bill Butler. Who, oh, okay. Who was the DP on Jaws, Grease, uh, Bloxy Blues, Hot Shots. Did he do uh, every worst screenplay nominee that year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it looks like it was just, at least two of them. Yeah. It looks like it's just Can't Stop the Music and this. Uh, and this. It's crazy. Um, I enjoyed this film a lot. I thought that every single character was believable. Yeah. That uh, the plot made sense. That the rela- the relationships were complicated in a very real way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in a normal movie, it would be extremely important that she confess to this, uh, the adultery that she had. But in this situation, it doesn't really matter because these two mm-hmm. people have grown apart and it's irrelevant. And it, it would be a needlessly complicating homer's life to even hear about this well and i think that it's it's not necessarily at this point relevant to her future right because you know she's moved past this yeah for now i but just it does feel seem... bad for homer because he was so charming he was in but the first half of the at, movie. at the end the the thing is homer doesn't change what what changes is what she wants out of a relationship and that's fine he should find someone else who wants what he wants he yeah. shouldn't be with her if she's gonna if she's going to need changes to be happy with him. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an amicable split between the two of them. And uh, I do think it's weird to, to decide, all right, I'm just going to go after step bro now. Because <laughs> it seems like that's where we ended up. That's like, okay. yeah. Her dad might die soon. And then is he no longer a stepbrother? I don't know. What does that make you? Husband material. Yeah. <laughs> He's already that, right? Um. But yeah, Joe Clayburgh is amazing in this. Uh, everything she does is great. Every every f- like minute change yeah. of her facial expression, you can read like a whole paragraph out of it. I was actually when I was watching her, I was thinking that this could have been Diane Keaton. Yeah, mm. I can see that. Did we want to just go into the rankings here? I'm still confused. Harry Potter Junior. Yes, because <laughs> his father is Harry Potter Senior. Because the troll universe. Because there's trolls that run the banks. I'm <laughs> so confused. People didn't realize it what until is the tonight. The, what is the premise of the troll movies? Uh, so the first movie. Um, is the it, first one the one that takes place in Nilbog? Or is that not even one of them? No, no, that's the second one. Okay. The, the first one is like a weird genre defying where it's like it's too kitty for adults, but way too adult for kids. It's one of those is it like, like Ernest Scared Stupid. um no but it's got like because it's got like full frontal nudity and it's got horrifying like wait did you say troll frontal nudity (laughs) (laughs) um like it's got like this horrible like mutilation scene and like this terrifying visual effect of sonny bono turning into a giant plant is this the one where the ball bounces down the stairs into the basement yeah Okay, in the first one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, in the first one. Then I had nightmares about that yeah. for years. No, it's, it's a really, this movie. It's a really yeah. scary movie. But then when it's cause, but it focuses on this kid, Noah Hathaway's character playing Harry Potter, who's just moved into this building. His daughter lives under the stairs. He's a wizard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, Don't it, make this worse. I'm yeah. already confused. <laughs> it, his sister is possessed by the spirit of an evil troll. Oh. Um, but upstairs, there's like a good witch played by June Lockhart, um, and she's got like <laughs> like goofy puppet like. Like a, like a puppet mushroom that's like her like spirit animal. It's like, blah, blah, blah. It's like this is adorable. But then it gets really horrifying. Yeah. There's all kind. There's like a whole like demonic monster puppet uh, musical that breaks out in the middle of it. It's wonderful. This sounds amazing. Um, what are we doing after this podcast? Yeah, I, I I have I have Troll One and Two on DVD. I love I love Troll One because it's so weird. I grew up with that movie. Troll Two obviously is notorious. For that one scene. Oh my God! They're <laughs> eating her, and then they're gonna eat me. 
but I, I, I troll one is just like, what is this movie? It's so weird, but it's kind of interesting too. But, <laughs> but again, it's not for kids, but it's, it's like, it spends too much time with kitty stuff yeah. to be for adults. Yeah. It's like the, if there was a brutal rape in a Star Wars movie. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why did that happen right there? Which there may have been implied with Palpatine's daughter. Spoiler alert. Yikes. Because I don't... Rise find, of the shit. I find it hard, hard to believe that he had consensual sex with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because he looks like uh, the Six Flags guy. <laughs> <laughs> I give this movie an up. Yeah, it's it's a definite really up it. for me. Yeah, it's so enough. This is a strong one. I was like, I can see why they gave it a Razzie. No, I can't. But no. I, I feel it's because it was too ahead of its time in far as far as its writing. And they well, were probably saying, this movie was really boring and stupid. And I didn't like how it ended. I don't like that women are respected. Yeah. Well, there was this? hardly any penises in any of the shots. <laughs> I never once saw boobs and it's all about women. But I mean, it's also, it's also in the, I don't understand the mindset of people from 1980 in so much as they hated The Shining. And I'm like, but that's right. the best movie of the year. And like, mm-hmm. this is right up there with some of the best writing we've seen all year. And they gave it a Razzie. Or they nominated it Yeah, they Razzie. nominated it. They had the they had the wherewithal to not give it the statue, but yeah, I I honestly think it comes down to they weren't willing to watch it a second time, and so on the first pass they were like, "How are these people related? What is that guy's name? Like, who are we talking about now? What is, what is does she teach science? What does she teach? Yeah. It, Why a, do I care about this? It's a film without a a really it's a film without a third act, hmm. um because it just kind of the movie just kind of ends at the low point. When she's breaking up with, she 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 lost Ben. She breaks up with her boyfriend, and then the movie just ends with her like moving on with her life. The third yeah. act is that scene where she's walking back to campus. Yeah, that's the third act of the movie yeah. where she unwraps baseball food. But I think that it ends with her having found a comfortable, confident place in her life and in, in a better place to potentially start a relationship with Ben if yeah. if they desire to. Yeah, agree. So like it's it's a satisfying ending for me. I'm fine Absolutely. with that. But but yeah, I I am and I I'm not I'm not expressing dissatisfaction, but I feel like if this was a more modern rom-com putting air quotes mm-hmm. that this there still would have been 15 or 20 minutes for a hang gliding scene or <laughs> a scene where she rushingly tries to get back to him wherever he is yeah. to confess her love and then they they have this wonderful moment where they meet up. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't happen and it doesn't need to happen. Right. Yeah. But I think people would been, would have been like. They're expecting it. Yeah. That makes sense. But I also like how innovative it was with where it was going to have scenes take place. Like the whole, like the entire airport moving through security, getting the whole way to the gate. They're yes. having this one long conversation. Well, and the breakthrough between her um, stepmom and her is comes in the bathroom. Like yeah. when they step aside, like I just, I think the, yeah, the staging for all of these scenes were, and the set pieces were nice. Yeah. Letterboxd, Jess, where's this going? I have it pretty high. Um, I have it at 29th place. Okay. I have it after Friday the 13th, but ahead of Little Miss Marker. All right. Richard? Uh, I have it at number 38. Okay. Um, it's after My Bodyguard, but before Resurrection. I I really- <laughs> movies don't belong there, Richard. I really They're like in the Re- wrong place. I like Resurrection. <laughs> and My Bodyguard. And My Bodyguard. It's really high. <laughs> I have it in 11th. Wow. Nice. It's uh, right under Little Darlings, which I actually think it has a lot in common with Little Darlings. And... Uh, it's right above Kagimusha. I think I probably could have given it another 10, 10 spots if, if it didn't involve baseball. <laughs> yeah. I think that's everything for this one. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing loving couples, which IMDb describes like so. Wife is cheating her husband and the husband is cheating her back with her lover's girlfriend. <laughs> Someone just it... typed this out very angrily. Yeah. <laughs> The two I, cheating I couples. I would have too. <laughs> yeah. 
The two cheating couples decide to go to a resort, but they unintentionally pick the same one. Hilarity ensues. Uh, I think I'm going to take issue with that point. (laughs) We leave you now with the trailer for Loving Couples. I think we said something about making love tonight, didn't we? Yeah, I think think so. I just don't remember what it was, Walter. In this era of marital malpractice... I'm a surgeon, not a marriage counselor. Rundown relationships. I guess I've made you pretty unhappy. Yeah. And fractured romance. We have candlelight, music in the background, tinkling of glasses, good wine. Now, what else? What else do you want? I just wish you didn't need to ask that question. Everyone's entitled to a second opinion in medicine and in love. Hi. Right. Now, how about lunch? I am married. Married people have to eat. 20th Century Fox presents the sensitive story of an intensive care affair. What do you mean, an affair? You don't know what that means? Loving couples. Hello? Hello, hello, Evelyn? Walter? I, uh, I, I can't talk right now. I've got to go. Uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can, okay? Walter! When doctors lose their patients. Walter, I want a separation. You what? And patients chase their doctors. What are you going to be doing this weekend? And loving couples become live-in singles. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I really understand how this is going to help anything. Oh, hell, I feel better already. The confusion can be contagious. Walter! Evelyn? Greg! Kathy! Do what many moviegoers recommend. Try Shirley MacLaine, James Coburn, Susan Sarandon, Stephen Collins, and Sally Kellerman. You should try to find somebody else. How about your husband? He's gay. In Loving Couples. It's all going to end on that note? You remember how T.S. Eliot said the world would end? No, I never read him. He said it would end with a whimper and not a bang. Loving Couples. 